Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, today is September 12th and Congress is back from its August recess, and therefore, so are we. Now, as Congress returns to work, the end of the federal fiscal year, September 30th, is looming. Congress needs to find a way to fund the government, lest we get a government shutdown. But important as that is, still nothing looms larger than the high-stakes midterm elections this November, with control of Congress at stake. So thinking ahead, there are many topics we plan to discuss this fall, like what the congressional agenda will be, how a December tax extenders bill might shape up, how the elections might impact the congressional tax agenda. Trust me, we will get to all of those this fall. But before we do that, I want to do something different today. I want to revisit what we've been calling the Biden tax agenda. Because the Inflation Reduction Act has become law, I think we have to ask the question, what becomes of the Biden tax agenda now that the main vehicle for that plan is gone, at least for now? To help me explore this topic, we've got Tom Sout and Jen Acuna with us today. Welcome, guys. So my first question is going to be for you, Jen. Of course, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, now law. Which tax provisions from the Biden tax plan made it into that bill? And then we could work by the reverse and trying to explore which ones might not be in there. So go ahead. That is the perfect phrasing of the question, not which ones remained, but which ones weren't kicked out. Basically, it boiled down to one, two, three, four, five provisions remained. At the end of the day, the Bookman tax, stock buyback tax, the pass-through loss limitation provision for 61L, Superfund taxes, which was not really a significant part, it's not a real policy piece of the Build Back Better Act, and Black Long Permanent Extension, another cats and dogs collection of tax provisions. So a lot got cut out and very few revenue raisers tax provisions remained. So, and one you didn't mention, and we could debate whether or not this is a tax provision from the Biden plan or not is, of course, IRS funding, which obviously doesn't amend the Internal Revenue Code. What do you think about that one, Jen? Would you call that part of the Biden plan or not? Yes and no. I mean, it's not really a change in tax policy, so I don't really include it as a raiser. And even though the CBO did indicate that it could raise revenue, it wasn't part of the JCT, the Joint Committee on Taxation's revenue raisers because it's kind of an off-books revenue raiser where you increase the funding of the IRS and you get a certain return on investment for that increased funding. So, sure, let's toss it in that category. Let's make (laughs) the five, six. Okay, there you go. And if you go back and listen to our episode on IRS funding, we presaged. It wasn't exactly, you know, you didn't have to have brilliant foresight to see this coming, that the IRS funding would be thrown into any final bill as a way to help make the numbers balance. And that was indeed the case. One more question for you, Jim. So we got the stock buyback provision. Now, that's an interesting one because it wasn't really in the original Biden plan, but it found its way into Build Back Better. So I don't know. What do you think of that one? I would imagine that the administration, of course, now fully endorses it, even if it wasn't part of the original plan. Fair enough? Definitely. It seems to have support. It didn't get a whole lot of pushback. And it was included in the Build Back Better bill that was passed by the House back last year. So I I, I toss it in. Yeah, well, we should, because if you remember, when we talked about the administration's Green Book, remember, they said that our plan assumes that Build Back Better was enacted, and then we're going to do all this other stuff. They didn't throw out the stock buyback and saying, oh, except for that thing, you know, because we don't agree with it. They sort of endorsed it in that way, even backhanded as it is. So I think it's fair to say that's in there. Okay, got it. So, Tom, now to you. 
that's what's in. So there's a long list of things that weren't from the original Biden plan. Maybe we'll just start on the individual side. We can't possibly hit them all, but give me the highlights. What are the big provisions on the individual side of the code? Then we'll talk about corporate in a minute, but on the individual side that did not make it into the plan that we know that the administration still supports and would like to continue to pursue. Well, it's just about everything, right, on the individual side. You know, this started out, Biden's plan was about $4 trillion, and we ended up with a bill that cost about $750 billion. So from $4 trillion to $750 billion, you didn't need a lot of revenue. They dropped out all of the individual tax preferences, things like the child tax credit expansion. And as a result, they cut out all of the individual changes. The only one that survived was a relatively small one extension of the 461L limitation on losses, but gone are changes in the top individual rate, the capital gains rate, taxing unrealized gains at death, some surtaxes on the wealthy that were in the VA, expansion of the net investment income tax, even the change in the taxation of carried interest income to ordinary, all of those left out on the individual side. But that being said, since the passage of the IRA, the Secretary Yellen has said, all of these we ought to bring back. These are all characterized by her as, as taxes on the wealthy, and they're ones that we ought to be looking at in the future. Yeah, so we haven't heard the last of those provisions, almost certainly. We could talk about what the future looks like in a minute here, but even in just simply as a matter of future administration green books, right, their tax proposals, almost certainly we're going to see those things come back again. You mentioned 461L. Even the version that we got was not really the Biden tax plan version, which was a little nastier. All we got was an extension of current law. So right. it was relatively modest in the end. Let me just ask you a question. It's almost impossible to answer, Tom, but I'll ask you anyway. Why not? Why? Why do we think the individual stuff fell out when some of the corporate stuff that Jen rattled off got in? Any idea what might have given lawmakers the decision to keep the corporate stuff in and leave the individual out? It comes down at the end of the day, the narrow majorities that the Democrats had in Congress, particularly in the Senate, and the objection of one senator in particular to the rate increases and the estate tax changes and the surtaxes, and that was you know, Senator Cinema from Arizona. Maybe it's nothing more complicated than the old saying that, of course, that individuals vote and corporations don't. So maybe, you know, that was viewed as part of the political calculus there. Okay, so that's individual. That was a pretty lengthy list. Jen. Let's just talk about the international tax side. Let's just leave out all the corporate stuff. Of course, the corporate rate increase was left out, et cetera. But the international piece, what was left out there? Because that was a real priority for many. What happened or didn't happen on the international side? What international piece in the Inflation Reduction <laughs> Act? I think right. is what we were all kind of left wondering. What happened? Every provision in the international space, in Biden's package, and in the Build Back Better Act dropped off. So we didn't see any of those carried over into the Inflation Reduction Act. So no increase in the guilty rate, no country by country, no increase in the beat rate and other modifications, no modifications to FDII, so no repeal, which is what Biden's package had originally proposed, no modifications there. It was pretty slim or non-existent on international pieces. It was interesting. The way this unfolded created mass confusion, I think, to a lot of people, especially outside the U.S., because they saw that the U.S. enacted this 15 percent minimum tax, which I think many commentators outside the U.S. immediately declared, aha, the U.S. has adopted pillar two. Right. It didn't happen. So we've got this other 15 percent minimum tax. I don't know. Do you think there's any way to make the argument that that in itself 
is a way to draw the U.S. closer to pillar two? Or do you think that's just wishful thinking? I think I'd call it a stretching of reality because we're living in the era of the minimum tax. 15% minimum taxes are being thrown left and right. This is a new 15% book minimum tax. So this is a domestic tax. So yes, there is a new minimum tax. Is it OECD compliant? Probably not, but will some try to make that case? Maybe. Whatever the OECD says is compliant, but that means you're getting a consensus of a lot of people and changing a lot of points of view, which would be a really hard thing to do, I think, at this point. We'll leave that very complex nuance to our friends, the Inside International Tax podcast, people, Gary Scanlon and his crew. But I think it's pretty clear that that's not what we got here, despite many people assuming that of course, the U.S. was going to do pillar two. When in fact, we got the different min tax is what we ultimately got. All right, Tom, come back to you. Boy, did we hear a lot about state and local taxes over the last, really since the enactment of the TCJA. But this whole idea that we were going to repeal the cap, increase the cap, you recall that there were a lot of New Jersey and New York Democrats walking around saying their catchphrase was no salt, no dice. Salt didn't get into the bill, right? So how do we explain drawing a very hard line on no salt, no dice to ending up, they all voted for the bill in the end. How did they rationalize that? Well, I would throw Maryland and D.C. taxpayers into that group too, and I include myself in that. (laughs) There were a lot of people disappointed that that didn't get in. Certainly it ended up being an empty threat to vote against the bill. The explanation for that was the individual tax changes stayed out of the IRA and therefore there's no reason to do this. The practical answer is the politics. They didn't have the votes. Again, Manchin didn't like what they were doing, increasing the cap in a way that looked like it was revenue neutral, but really wasn't. There was a lot of criticism of the distributional effect. And of course, it's not an issue in West Virginia. It's not a big deal there. So got left out. And at the end of the day, those who were saying no salt, no dice, they were happy to get something. And they got quite a lot, getting basically a three-quarter of a trillion dollar bill through and getting all the climate change provisions and so forth. They were happy to take that and took it without the salt change. I think you've got that right. Their stated view, which is plausible, right, is that, well, why would they fall on their sword on salt in what is basically a corporate tax bill? Right. If this was an individual bill, of course, they say we would have absolutely drawn that line. But because this wasn't really an individual bill, it was really a business bill, this was not the time or place to die on that particular hill. On the other hand, I also think one other dynamic that's going on is that the emergence of these salt workarounds in these various states has really taken a lot of pressure off the salt issue. It hasn't made it go away by any chance. And of course, even that relief is very narrowly limited to pastor entities, et cetera. But in many cases, that has taken some pressure off. So I think in the end, you know, they weren't about to hold this bill up over salt because this was going to be, and it has been, an enormously big win for the administration and for congressional Democrats. And they were willing to take the win and leave salt for another day. I yeah. think that's right. All right. Here's my last question. It's for both of you. So, Jen, I'll start with you. But, Tom, of course, your thoughts as well. We know what happened in the Inflation Reduction Act. We got some really important provisions. Look, we should not undersell the importance of that book minimum tax. Wow, the repercussions are going to be long-lasting and far-reaching. The climate provisions, wow, transformational stuff, just in tax, the ability to buy and sell tax credits, that's going to be an episode. We've got to talk about that. But nevertheless, most of the Biden plan, it did not get in there. So the question is, which of those pieces should we look forward to in the future is still being in play? And I know it's impossible to answer that without knowing what the future Congress looks like. 
But Jen, I don't know. If you look at the, the rest of the Biden plan, which things do you think taxpayers should be looking at saying, that's something I got to continue to keep my eye on? I would say as a former staffer, and you know this, John, every single one of those revenue raisers <laughs> that was not included is in play for the future, just by definition. There are only so many ways to raise a dollar, which we always say. The Hill is very aware of that. Every single one of these, I promise you, are squirreled away for another day. So international changes, that's at the top of my list. If there is another opportunity, if Democrats keep the House, the Senate, then you could see that being very much in play in another reconciliation bill. Even the increase in the corporate rate, we didn't really talk about that one, but it was a big razor and it had a lot of support. It didn't have unanimity in the Senate, but it certainly had a lot of support that one you could expect to be dusted off in the event that Democrats keep the House and the Senate. Just going down the list, you could just pretty much bring in any of those razors. Tom was talking about individual. That's another one. That whole package is something that could be very attractive politically and from a revenue perspective on another bill. But that's one scenario. Depending on what happens in November, if we have split government this next Congress, then very few of these have any life left in them. You don't see many of these as having bipartisan appeal? No, I, I don't see any of them as having bipartisan appeal. Even the salt cap, which, Tom, yes, I feel your pain. <laughs> I feel your pain, John, as a D.C. Yep. residents. I'm in Virginia, and even we care about that salt limitation. But there just is not bipartisan support on most of these revenue yeah. raisers. Yeah. All right, Tom, what do you think? Of the things that are still out there as part of the Biden plan— I 100% agree with what Jen said. All of them are out there now forever. But any of them you think that people ought to be watching especially closely? Tax proposals like this never go away. Whenever they need revenue for something, they're going to pull something out of this bag that they've got sitting out there. A lot will depend on how much revenue they need at the time. Certainly the rate increases are up there from the administration's point of view. And as Jen says, international, which even apart from the use of those provisions to offset spending proposals, the administration views that as imperative for other reasons. They've pushed an international agreement, and now we're having trouble complying with the agreement that we made. That is a very special case and probably a high priority for the administration. And the taxation of the wealthy is something that's always appealing on the Democratic side, but of course it depends on having a significant enough Democratic majority to be able to get it through, which they didn't have this time. Maybe because of one senator, maybe because of two. We don't know exactly how many because it never got that far. So looking forward, what's the result going to be in 2022 in the election and 2024 and beyond? That's what we'll see. I agree with Jen, too. I don't see any significant Republican support for any of these at present time. So it's going to depend on Democratic majorities. Yeah, and we shouldn't ignore events beyond anyone's control. Like, what was the state of the economy going to be in 2023 or beyond? Like, that could derail or reinforce the need to do any of these. And so you also have to consider what else might be happening in the world or in the economy at any given time. So, okay, well, that's all we have time for today. Jen and Tom, thank you very much. In closing, here's a question. What exactly did we learn from the saga of the Biden tax plan morphing into the Build Back Better Act? morphing into the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, a few things, I think. First, at each stage, the package got smaller, got less ambitious. Now you might say, John, that's nothing new. That's almost always the direction of travel for legislation as policy aspirations run headlong into political realities. 
And that's true. But there have been moments where Congress has nevertheless been able to pull off remarkably ambitious legislation, despite those political realities. The Affordable Care Act comes to mind. Even the TCJA, no matter what you think of it, included $10 trillion worth of tax changes. That was probably a once in a lifetime tax bill. Second question would be then, does the IRA outcome tell us something about the rest of the Biden tax plan itself, that perhaps it can't be done? Well, I don't think so. Remember, raising taxes is hard. It doesn't matter whether you have a D or an R next to your name. The narrowness of the tax title to the IRA is in my mind as much a reflection of how small the spending was in that bill as it is on the political viability of those tax proposals themselves. As we said in an episode earlier this year, Congress just doesn't really raise taxes in a bill beyond what they need to pay for that bill's spending, the IRS funding point in IRA aside. Finally, as we discussed, many people were absolutely convinced the international changes would be at the top of the revenue raiser list because the administration was pushing so hard on getting the U.S. system in line with the OECD's Pillar 2 proposals. Well, what to make of that? Well, I think it's just a reminder that Congress writes the laws, not the administration. We are not a parliamentary system. And it was clear all along that Congress did not embrace the urgency of the OECD project in the way that the administration did. Now, that's not to say the congressional Democrats were opposed. It's just that with limited revenue needs in the skinny down IRA, Congress did what it usually does, takes the path of least resistance. But I could not agree more with what Jen and what Tom said. International changes are definitely still on the Democratic agenda, if given the chance. So that leaves all eyes on the November midterms. And there's much more to say about that in the future. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.